All right, so it could be that last week I preached to that black dot back there with no smiling faces looking back at me. I'm sure that's part of it. It could be that I recognize that there is just strength and there's power and there's joy and there's fulfillment when the people of God are gathered together. And it could be that when we are gathered together like this and we are lifting our voices and we are singing about the goodness of God, about the fact that he is such a good, good father to us, far better than any of us deserve. And then we sing about that marvelous grace that, like for many of you, that song kicks me back decades in my life. I don't know. It could be all of those things fitting together, but I about had a running fit right over here. Um, mm, about got turned loose, and I may still, because I can't quite get over just how good God is. How good he's been to me, who, if we were to stand up and have testimony time this morning, I can assure you that I'm I am on that lower rung. I'm like Paul that says, you know, the things that I know I need to do, I don't do. And the things that I know that I shouldn't do, I do. And who am I except that I am just one who is in receipt of God's grace and his mercy? I'm, that is my testimony. It's my, it's my full disclosure and transparent honesty in front of you this morning. And I know that if you were fully transparent and honest with me, you could say the exact same thing. And so we are beggars. We are sinners. We are, we are those that stand in complete and total need coming to this place. There's not a one of us, no matter what kind of way that we come in here and promote ourselves, there's not one of us that could stand before God and earn any sort of, of, of grace from him. We are, we are beggars in need of God's grace. Now, none of that is in these notes, and you've already looked at your outline, and you see seven points. So we've got a long way to go in a short time to get there. But I think that it is appropriate for us to have the proper attitude and understanding of what God has done in our lives as we approach this text this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. If you've been tracking with us over the last three weeks, you'll know that we have been studying and exploring all that John has told us about the New Jerusalem the holy city, the future heavenly home that he is, Jesus has gone on to prepare for folks just like us who are undeserving of it. And what he's told us has been amazing. It's been awe-inspiring. It's been mind-boggling. It's been very difficult in some respects for us to get our minds completely wrapped around. And as I even said last week, there's so much more that I wish I did know that I don't know. But I do know enough to know that I want to go there and I want to be there. And I want to be there with those that have gone on before me. And I want to be in the presence of my Savior. And I want to see God face to face, as the Bible says. Now, that all stands, I believe, in it kind of hovers over what we're going to look at today. Everything we've looked at the last three weeks sort of stands there, looming, as it were, right over our shoulder as we come to these last words of the book of Revelation. Now, many believe, as I do, that the, that the of all the books that are included in our canon of Scripture, all 66 books that are there, that, that Revelation was the one chronologically written last. Most believe that it was written right at the very end of the first century. And, and as such, the words that we read today 
Not only are the last words written by the Apostle John, but they are the last words recorded in Scripture. And they also have within them recorded the last words we have of Jesus Christ. And that makes these words in this passage very important. In fact, I want us to consider what our lasting responses should be to these last words. So without any further ado, let's read them. Let's begin in verse 6. That's where we ended last week with verse 5. Let's pull verse 6 and go all the way to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. John writes, Then he, that is the angel, said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root of the offspring of David, the bright And morning star and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come. Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for all the things that we have already sang about and talked about and spoken of this morning. And now I pray that you would give us wisdom and And help us as we walk through this passage to know all these things that you would have us to know and to respond appropriately in Christ's name. Amen. You know, every week I um, I made it a a practice. I didn't set out necessarily to do this, but um, every week that I read the passage of Scripture that I'm going to 
that we're going to, to talk about and study, I always say those words, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. And the reason that I say that and the reason that I remind you of it every single week is because if there is a God who is sovereign over all things, and, and if that God is the one who created us and designed us for relationship with him, and, and if that God is the one before whom all of us will one day stand and give an account of our lives, then everything that he communicates and says to us is of absolute importance to our lives. And we ought to pay attention to it, and we ought to consider it, and we ought to think about it deeply. In fact, I would say to you, there is not another book ever written that is of greater value to you than the one that you hold in your lap this morning. It is authentic, it is reliable, and the words contained in it are life-giving and eternity-changing words. And I believe that theme of the reliability of God's word shows up a couple times, at least, in the text that I've already read to you this morning. Another theme that shows up repeatedly in the passage that I just read for you is the imminency of Jesus' return. It's his impending, his certain, his you can bank on it, I'm coming back promise that he makes. In fact, he repeats that three times in this passage that I just read for you. He is coming back. So the return of Christ, the reliability and the authenticity of Scripture, both of those themes show up repeatedly in the verses that I just read for you. And the reason that I want to point out those repeated themes is because when you take them and you couple them with what we've been studying over the past three weeks, which is the reality of heaven, the place that that Christ has gone to prepare for us, the promise of a home that he has built for us, for those who are saved, then, then I believe those themes, those three themes actually cause us to ask some very important questions. The the main question that must is, is how does the reality of those things affect the way that I'm supposed to live? In other words, in light of the reality of heaven, in light of the return of Christ, in light of the reliability of Scripture, what should our response be to those things? How should our lives be affected? What changes should be made in how we live concerning these realities. Or as I mentioned, as the title to my sermon states it, what should our lasting responses be to these last words? Well, I believe that our passage identifies seven of them, and I don't want you to be too worried about it. We'll get through all of it. The 11 o'clock will come in whenever they come in, and we'll be fine. (laughs) I at least want to identify them for you so that you can actually go back and maybe study some more of these things more in depth on your own. But I want to be able to identify them for you this morning. And the first one that I would have you to know, we get it from verses 6 and 7, is that in light of everything we've looked at, these three themes, then we have to keep the Word of God. We must keep the Word of God. Notice that it is on the heels of John's description of heaven in verse 5 that the angel who has been John's tour guide through the whole process says in verse 6... These words are faithful and true. In other words, they're trustworthy, they're reliable, they're dependable. You can count on them. 
Everything revealed in this vision given to John can be relied upon to be true and to come to pass. But listen, that same verdict can be applied to all of Holy Scripture. After all, notice notice that the angel identifies the ultimate source of all Scripture there in verse 6. He identifies him as the Lord God of the holy prophets. These words agree with what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, where he says no prophecy is of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, so this is divine revelation, and therefore it is reliable. It's true. Now, in light of that, notice that in verse 7, Jesus adds to the angel's declaration these words. He says, behold, I am coming quickly. This is the first of three times that we see something very similar to this. Don't miss this. What we see is that the divine, authentic, verifiable truthfulness of God's word is coupled with Christ's own declaration of his soon return. And those two things lead to the declaration of blessing for those who will keep God's word. Now, the question is, what does it mean to keep God's word? Well, the obvious answer to that is to obey it, to do the things that it commands, the things that it says. We are to live in accordance with it. That certainly makes sense that if God has given us instruction, then we should obey what God says and we should follow it. But I think that there's more that we could consider, perhaps, as it pertains to keeping God's word. You see, there's much about the prophecy written in Revelation that is not so much prescriptive as it is descriptive. It's not so much telling us what we should do as much as it is telling us what we should expect. And and certainly those passages are also in view when, when Jesus says to keep his word so what, is it, what does that look like? What, do we, what does it mean to keep something that doesn't specifically tell us something to do? How are we to do that? Well, I think that to keep God's word not only means that we have to obey it, but I think it means cherish it. I think it means to, to, to preserve it. I think it means to, to value it and to, to, to chew on it. You know, it's, it's like a cow chews on its cud. We would be so good if we enveloped our minds so much with what Bible says that we chew on it. We, 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 we try to roll it around in our minds constantly. That's what I think it means to keep the word of God. One preacher put it this way. We must let the word of God live in our daily lives. We must let it guide us and shape us. We must let it transform us into the image of the Lord Jesus. In his commentary on this passage, Dennis Johnson says this, and I love it. He says, Scripture is not a passive cadaver waiting for the curious medical student to come and dissect it in their quest for information. No, it is a living, double-edged sword that proceeds from the mouth of the triumphant Son of Man and pierces the thoughts and the intents of our heart. It is a hammer that shatters, a seed that grows, rainfall that never returns to its giver without accomplishing the mission of which he sent it. Scripture has a job to do in us. Brothers and sisters, you and I must keep it. We must keep God's word. That's the first necessary response that I think we see. The second one, though, comes from verses 8 and 9. 
And there we learn that we must worship only God. We must worship only God. In verse 8, John affirms the validity of the revelation that was just given to him. He says that he was the one who both saw and heard the things that were written down. And evidently, John was so overcome and overwhelmed by what he was given the vision to see and the things that he heard that he does the unthinkable. He falls down before his tour guide, the angel, and begins to worship him. Now, strikingly, this is not the first time that this has happened. In fact, if you go back to chapter 19, you will read a very, very similar situation occurred there. Apparently, even though John was one of Jesus' apostles, he still had a hard time learning his lessons the first time. And that gives me a little bit of hope in my life. I don't know about you. But here's what I want to point out to you. All that John had seen and heard, was so overwhelming and awe-inspiring that it produced within him an immediate and overpowering desire to worship. It was as if he couldn't help himself. The first question that I would ask you is this. Does God's word do that for you? Does it, does it foster within you this overpowering desire to worship that you can't you can't even control. So are the scriptures, is God's grace and mercy that is revealed to us in his holy scriptures so awesome and so overpowering to you that you're overcome and all you want to do is fall to your knees? If not, then, then perhaps, perhaps it is that you have not ever fully come to grips with just how awesome God's grace and mercy actually are. When we sing, oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is God's love for me. When we sing those songs, they're more than just words. They're more than just tunes. They're more than just things that connect us to the past. They are things that connect us to the present and to our future because that is our only hope. And it should every time draw us into worship. That's the first question. The second question I was asked is this. What or who are you worshiping? Listen, Exodus 20, verse 3 makes it clear. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. We are to worship God and God alone. And while we should give honor and respect where honor and respect are due, our allegiance and our adoration and our worship is not to be directed to a pastor it's not to be directed to, 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 to some other leader that's out there. It's not to be directed to some other thing that attracts our attention. It is to be directed to God and to him alone. And this passage necessitates that we evaluate our hearts and ask ourselves if we have truly been overcome by the sheer greatness and the awesomeness of the message of the scriptures and if we are responding with worship and adoration of God or have we allowed ourselves to become overcome with other things and that our worship is of things far less than God. Danny Aiken puts it this way. He says, if you take a good thing like an angel and turn it into a God thing that you worship, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes an idol. Brothers and sisters, we have to guard ourselves against idolatry. It's almost on every single page of Scripture. 
we must worship God and God alone. So we must keep God's word. We must worship only God. Then notice the third implication that comes from this passage in verses 10 and 11. We must proclaim the truth of God. We must proclaim the truth of God. Now, again, we recognize that the necessity of this proclamation is rooted in the immediacy of the fact that the time is near. For all that John has written to come to pass. John is told this, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. What that means in the context of this passage is that Christ could return at any moment. Eternity is nearer now than it has ever been. And that is true for each one of us individually because none of us are promised to tomorrow, not a single one of us. And why that's important is because when that day comes, whenever Christ's return comes and, and he, he brings everything to pass, or even the day that you and I breathe our last and we pass from this life, there will not be any further time for change. That, that generally is the interpretation of what verse 11 says. Notice what it says again. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy. Let him be holy still. Listen, numerous times in Scripture, the return of Christ is compared to a thief coming in the night. And listen, when a thief comes, he, he doesn't just come and announce to everybody, hey, y'all, y'all get ready. I'm going to be there in about 10 minutes. Y'all get, get all of your defenses set up and change whatever you're doing. No, when a thief comes, he comes unexpectedly. And oftentimes, without any prior understanding and notice that he will be there. And listen, when that day comes, there will be no time for last-minute repentance, changing. Those who are filthy will be filthy still. Those who are unjust will be unjust still. And those who are holy will be holy still. Listen, there's no time for last-minute repentance, but there is time now for repentance That's why, as a preacher of the gospel, I sense such an urgency in declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is why you as believers ought to sense that same urgency when you come in contact with your family and friends to share that same good news with them. The reason is because there is coming a day and a time when the dam of God's grace and mercy will burst and give way to God's judgment. And when that happens, those who live unjust, unholy, filthy lives, they will die without having ever repented and trusting in Jesus to save them, and they will meet the Lord in judgment. And as the Scriptures declare, they will be cast into the lake of fire, and they will suffer punishment for all eternity because of their sin. That may not be a popular message, but it is gospel message. And the word of God must not be hindered. That is why we dare not silence the word of God. We must not silence it through our disobedience to it. We must not silence it through our indifference to it. We must not silence it through our laziness of it. And we must not silence it through our neglect of it. We must proclaim it. And we must do so faithfully because there will come a day when the opportunity to respond to the gospel and the word of God will be no more. That brings us to the next necessary implication that arises from this text. Notice it there in verses 12 through 15. We must pursue the will of God. 
we must pursue the will of God. Just as we saw in the previous point, so we too see here that the soon return of Christ is the impetus that lies behind this push to pursue the will of God. Jesus again declares that he will come quickly. And when he does, he says he's going to bring his reward with him. The ESV translates it this way, that Jesus, when he returns, will repay everyone for what he has done. That is in accord with what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. He says, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Then, back here in Revelation, just as as we saw in chapter 21, so we see again here, Jesus declares that the authority that he has to be the one who sits in judgment over us and over all human beings is that he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. You want to know why Jesus has the authority? Because that's who he is. He is the one who, according to Jeremiah 17, verse 10, can see to the intents of our hearts and knows exactly what we're thinking and why we do what we do. There's nothing that can be hidden before him. He is the one. He, there is no one who supersedes him. So he is judge over all. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the, last, the alpha and the omega. So the question is, the question that we have to deal with, so what is the repayment that Christ is coming to bring? Well, what will it be based upon? Well, we read that those who do his commandments, those who heed and obey his word, those, or as the ESV described it, those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, well, they will be blessed, Jesus says, and their blessing will come by way of entrance into the gates of the city that gives them access to the tree of life. Did you notice that there? Here's what I want you to see. All three of those themes show up right here. We find the imminence of Christ's return there, coupled with the obedience to the reliable and authentic word of God. That theme is there. And then we also find this reference back to this promise of eternal life that is characterized by admittance into the heavenly city and a renewed access to the tree of life. All three themes show up right here. And all three themes tell us, in light of that, we better pursue the will of God in your life. So the reward and the recompense that comes to those who do his commandments is that we gain heaven. On the other hand, those who live their lives in opposition to the word of God, well, they will live as dogs outside the gates of heaven. That's what we read there. They are described there in verse 15 as sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, those who love and practice lies. Now, when, when, when we read this here, we're not to imagine that this verse teaches us that, that we're going to be inside the walls of heaven and they're just going to be on the other side of the walls there. That, 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 we, we, we would do better to go back to chapter 21 and understand exactly how that verse should be interpreted because in chapter 21, verse 8, all of that same group of people are identified excuse me, identified again. And what it says there is that they will be denied access to the tree of life and the throne of God because they have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And here's what I want you to know. Those two alarmingly different outcomes are what drive us to recognize how absolutely important it is to pursue the will of God. As the famous preacher R.G. Lee once preached his most famous sermon, we are to pursue the will of God because there will be a payday someday. 
Christ will reward those who are faithful and he will execute judgment on those who are evil. Now let me, let me be quick to say, do not jump to the wrong conclusion and think that this passage teaches that we are saved by our works and by our good deeds. No. We are saved by God's grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb. Nevertheless, we must not be deceived into believing that a life of faith in Jesus will never produce good works. Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, he says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. To quote Robert Mounts, he says this, he says, It is the quality of a person's life that provides the ultimate indication of what that person really believes. So we must keep the word of God. We must worship only God. We must proclaim the truth of God. We must pursue the will of God. And notice, fifthly, we must accept the invitation of God. We must accept the invitation of God. Notice, notice this invitation there. We're going to skip to the part where, where, where he talks about coming and the choir sang that song so beautifully and it just dovetails perfectly with this passage Notice verse 17. Here's the invitation, the great invitation of revelation in in, in, in truthfulness, the great invitation of Scripture. And the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. You can't miss that invitation to come. Come and get it. It's here. Come drink. It's the water of life. You don't have to have any money. In fact, money won't get you access to it. You can't buy this water. It's not for sale. It is for those who come thirsty. And when you come thirsty to the water of life, you will always find it there in plenteous supply. He is there for you. So come. You may ask, well, who can come? Listen, everyone who hears can come. All who thirst can come. All who desire can come. Let me say to you that the invitation to come to Jesus and to drink from the water of life is open and is available to any and to all who will repent of their sin and place their unconditional faith in Jesus Christ. And what that means is that no matter how big a sinner you think you are, no matter how far down you think you have gone, The invitation for you is to come. You will not be cast out as too vile or too wicked. Come and drink from the water of life. As the scriptures and the words of this prophecy declare, accepting this invitation to come is your only hope for eternity. There will come a day where repentance and accepting this invitation will be no more. But today is the day of grace and the offer is there. Come, come to the waters, drink from them. And that brings me then to the sixth thing that is the necessary implication that I have for you there. Verses 18 and 19, we must heed the warning of God. We must heed the warning of God. First of all, the warning is embedded earlier that if if you don't come, there is the, there's the, the, 
the judgment that will come upon you. But then there's another severe warning that's embedded in these last words. John writes, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone asks these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. The underlying themes, can you see, they continue here. They're still standing in the background of everything we're, we're looking at. And the intensity and the harshness of the judgment of God that he passes is clear. God's word is not to be tinkered with. John MacArthur has provided a pastoral and a theological interpretation of what we read here. He says this, No true believer would ever deliberately tamper with Scripture. Those who know and love God will treat His Word with utmost respect. They will say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law, and I delight in your law. Now that does not, of course, mean that believers will never make errors in judgment or mistakenly interpret Scripture incorrectly or inadequately. The Lord's warning here, he writes, is addressed to those who engage in deliberate falsification or misinterpretation of Scripture. Those whom Paul denounces as peddlers of the Word of God. Simply put, we must heed this warning of God because there is an exceedingly high price to pay for tampering with the book of Revelation specifically and the Scriptures in general. And that brings us to the last necessary implication that comes as a result of understanding the importance of these underlying and repetitive themes in this passage. The theme of heaven is our rich reward. The theme of God's word being our divine, authentic authority that we must cherish and obey. And the theme of Christ guaranteed an imminent return. Notice the last one with me there. We must pray for the coming of God. Verses 20 and 21. In verse 20, Jesus for the third time, declares that he is coming quickly. And he adds the word surely there in front of you. You see that? And, 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 and that's just to remove any doubt that what's going to happen is going to happen. And to that again repeated promise, John responds, Amen. So be it. Yes, Lord. What you say, let it come to pass. Amen. I agree with you. And then he says, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now, that idea is related to an Aramaic expression that was well known in the ancient church. It's an idea that is expressed with one word. It's a word that we're likely familiar with. It's a name that we see very often. It's the word Maranatha. And that word Maranatha in Aramaic literally means, Come, Lord Jesus. Come. The Spirit and the bride say, Come to them to the waters of life. And we, in return, who have come to those waters, say, Come, Lord Jesus. As we noted last week, when we consider the fact that the new heavens and the new earth, when that comes, that the curse will be reversed. Well, as one one theologian has put it, if, if all creation groans and travails together in pain, awaiting the redemption of Christ's return, then how much more should we, as God's children, how much more should we groan and pray for Christ's return? 
To quote Mounts again, he adds that John's final prayer, we find the confession that the answers to the problems of life do not lie in man's ability to create a better world, but in the return of the one whose sovereign power controls the course of human affairs. Brothers and sisters, we must pray for the coming of God because our hope lies in the sure promise of Christ's return. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Now, by this point, you're probably wondering, Pastor, those words were written 2,000 years ago. Um, How are we supposed to understand this word quickly there? Because Christ said this and 2,000 years have rolled along and he has not yet come. How are we supposed to understand this delay? Because some have come along and mocked Christ's promise as being something we can't depend upon. Peter even wrote and told us that that would happen. In 2 Peter 3, he says, scoffers are going to come in the last day walking according to their own lusts. They're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But then notice what Peter goes on to say in 2 Peter 3. He says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Even more important is this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but his long-suffering toward us. Willing, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What that should tell us is that any sense that we have of delay in Christ's return should be understood as an extension of his kindness and his love and his patience toward those who remain obstinate and those who have refused his offer of grace. His delay is not slackness. His delay is kindness. But one day, one day he will return. Surely, And when he does, all that John has written will come to pass, just as he said it would. And as Paul writes in Titus 2, verse 13, until then we must wait and we must look for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look, we watch, we wait, we pray. And then John ends the book with these words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Christ be with you all. Amen. We consider that final blessing and all that we have thought of through these these last words of Holy Scripture. I've stated my sermon in a sentence this way, and y'all didn't think I was ever going to get there. And I didn't think I was either. The reality of heaven, the return of Christ, and the reliability of God's word necessitates that we respond by faith, in faith by living, obedient, worshipful, holy lives that counts on God's grace. That's what our responses ought to be to the last words. So let me ask you today, does that accurately characterize the way you have responded? Have you come to faith in Christ? Have you admitted your sin and your need of his salvation? And have you confessed those sins and come to him by faith and received him as your Lord and Savior? Have you given your heart and your life to Jesus? I want you to know, do not delay in doing that. Do not assume I will take care of that at another time. Do not assume that God doesn't want me because he doesn't know what all I've done and you don't know what all I've done. I want you to know the invitation of Scripture is to come and to come now. 
And that invitation makes that clear. Fall on the grace and the mercy of God and drink from the waters of everlasting life. If that is your testimony, then let me ask you, are you keeping the word of God and are you cherishing it? Are you loving it? Are you reading it? Are you studying it? Is it your most precious thing? Is your heart filled with worship for the Lord? Or if you are honest, are you chasing after other things of more importance to you? Jesus says, wherever our treasure is, there our heart will be also. You need to examine your life in light of these last words and determine where is your treasure. Are you proclaiming the truth of God to others? Are you pursuing his will for your life? Are you following hard after him every single day? Or are you, are you watching and are you waiting and are you praying for his return? Brothers and sisters, these, these are the lasting responses of people who believe that this is God's word and that these are his last words to us. So brothers and sisters, are those responses characterized in your life? This, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for how it challenges us. We thank you for how it puts us straight in the crosshairs of truth. Now, Father, I pray that in these quiet moments that we take and in the moments that we come next as we sing, you would move in a mighty way in the hearts and the lives of these who are here. Father, that you might convince them of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. That you might once again convince them of the verifiable truth of your word and the absolute sure you can count on it return of Christ and the glories of heaven that stand be received by those whose faith is in you. Impress those truths upon us and then move us, move our feet and our hands in the direction of how you would have us to live our lives as a result. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.